So we see in our text this morning, Paul is brought into yet another hearing. He's been before throne, before tribunes and councils, and now he's going to stand before a governor, the governor of Judea. Now, you may be tempted here, and also next week, when he stands for, before another governor, Festus, and then also Bernice and, and uh, King Agrippa, you may be tempted to say, oh boy, here we go again, Paul dragged before another authority to give his defense. But remember that it pleased the Holy Spirit to include this narrative, for all Scripture is profitable, even these long historical narratives. For there are no idle words in Scripture, and woven into these narratives are precious doctrines and precious truths. Truths to be revealed, in this case, in a forum, a very public forum before dignitaries, just as was prophesied by Christ Himself in Luke when he said, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake, and it will result in an opportunity for your testimony. In chapter 24, Luke tells of a good man and a bad man. The good man stands in the docket before the bad man, but before long the tables are turned. And the bad man soon finds himself in the docket before the good man, a messenger of God. And there is no doubt that Felix was a bad man, but he was no different than any one of us before God got his hands on us. Felix is a classic example of every person who has been challenged with the truth of the gospel and yet soundly rejected it. Turning from the path of redemption, more hardened in the rejection, more hardened in their sin. And we see this in the Keystone verse in in verse 25. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and answered, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will call for you. We know that Felix was convicted here. How do we know that? Because he was frightened. He was physically trembling Yet he hardened his stony heart in the face of such light. Paul had illuminated the light that there will be a coming judgment for his unrighteousness and for his lack of self-control. And for every thought and every action and even every idle word, judgment is coming at an unknown time, but judgment is coming at the perfect predestined time. And this judgment is final And it's eternal. So Paul, concerned for Felix's soul, is warning him to escape the judgment to come. Yet Felix, although shaken, he's unwilling and he's unable to submit. He's unwilling and he's unable to turn from the very sin that is heaping up the wages, the wages of death, earned in unrighteousness and, and rebellion to God. Felix is holding on tight to his sin. How about you, believer? Are you holding on tight to your sin? Delaying just as Felix to turn from your sin, knowing that it displeases God, knowing that it grieves the Holy Spirit. And for those of you that may be here that do not know the Lord, are you holding on to your sin? The very sin that will one day usher in the coming judgment? Are you unmoved 
by the fact that your sin is so vile that God would only accept the blood of his son? Are you numb to the fact that your sin is so wicked before a holy God that it requires the very blood of God to take away your sin? Think of it. The blood of God, more precious than a thousand galaxies. That was the purchase price for your ugly sin. And don't be misled by modern Christianity that's telling you that you are so awesome. That is why God would suffer and bleed and die for you, is you are so awesome. Well, let me be clear. You are not awesome. Why are we not awesome? We're not awesome for Christ suffered, bled, and died because of the blackness of your sin. He suffered, bled, and died for the blackness of your soul that is so dark. That is the highest price. The blood of God that that was required to buy you out of darkness, to buy you out of slavery to sin. So how can you not set upon your sin as the most evil thing in the world? Unbeliever, if you are in denial as Felix is in denial here, and a great multitude of humanity saying, when I find a convenient time, well, there may never be a convenient time. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I want this thought of delay to be forefront in your mind as we study the Apostle Paul's interaction with Felix. Well, let's look at Felix. He was a worldly man, and he would leave a scandalous wake in the Roman world. He was ruthless and cruel. He had a propensity for taking bribes, which led to a great increase in crime in Judea. His period of rule was marked by internal feuds and disturbances, which he put down with severity. He even hired assassins to murder Jonathan, the high priest, shortly after he took office. Because Jonathan threatened to report him to Caesar. Felix was a former slave who rose to the rank of governor. But it didn't change him. His position meant nothing. His sins would find him out. He was driven by the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the pride of his life. Of his own will, he couldn't change himself any more than a leopard could change its spots or an Ethiopian change its skin. The Roman historian Tacitus said of Felix, he had the office of the governor, but he ruled with the mind of a slave. And as a result, he was not highly regarded by the influential Romans, and he accomplished little in his seven years as the governor of Judea. Finally, his corruption became so great that Nero, who was no model of morality himself, had him recalled. And he would have been executed if his brother, who, who was in Rome at the time, had not pleaded on his behalf. Yet still in our text this morning, he is the governor, most excellent Felix. In his personal life, the elderly Felix could boast of having a beautiful young wife who is not even 20 years old. It's his third wife. And even this was not without scandal, because Drusilla, who was raised in Judaism, had already broken off one engagement to a man who didn't embrace her Judaism. So she married a lesser monarch from Syria. And when she was 16 years old, Felix finds her. And in his lust to have her, he persuades her to marry him. 
and they get married in an illegal marriage, Felix's ruthlessness and cruelty seemed to have paid dividends on the outside, but he was rotten. He was rotten on the inside. He was dead in his sins. So instead of responding to the gospel that Paul brings him, as the Philippian jailer with a broken heart filled with repentance, or even the men of Israel, you remember, in Acts 2, when they heard the gospel from Peter at Pentecost, and they in a panic said, what do we do? How must we be saved? Instead of that, Felix retreats back to the world. Now, the lead up to this latest hearing we're going to look at here in chapter 24, you remember from last week, Claudius Lysias was tipped off to a plot by the Jews to kill Paul. So he saves Paul from the more than 40 that took an oath to kill him. So he gets Paul safely to Caesarea, guarded by 470 soldiers. In a letter, Lysias explains everything to Felix, who's based in Caesarea. Felix, upon receiving the letter, confirms that he actually does have jurisdiction over Paul. And he agrees to hear the accusers. And when they arrive, Paul is kept under guard. And actually, he'd be kept under guard all the way through this hearing for the next two years. We find that out in verse 27. So point one in your outline, Felix deliberates. And we're first going to look at Paul defamed. This is verse 1. Now, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. Here the prosecution brings its case against Paul. We see in verse 1 that so zealous were Paul's accusers that even the high priest Ananias made the 65-mile journey down to Caesarea to add weight to these charges. And note it only took five days for the Jews to put together their case, hire an attorney, gather witnesses, gather the elders, and make the trip down to Caesarea. You sense there's an urgency here. They want to get this thing before the governor, don't they? As soon as possible. This was their chance. This was their opportunity. So they hire the best Roman attorney that money could buy, Tertullus, who was familiar with the ways of the Roman justice system, likely even speaking in Italian, thinking maybe, well, Paul won't know Latin, and that would stack, that that would stack the deck. But certainly Paul would, being a highly educated Roman citizen. So this hired gun, this silver-tongued legal orator, Tertullus, brings the case. And after Paul is summoned, in, summoned verses 2 through 4, it reads, saying, As we have attained much peace through you, and because by your provision reforms are being carried out for this nation, we welcome this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix." with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I plead with you for, by your forbearance to hear us briefly. Man, Tertullus lays it on thick, doesn't he? To most excellent Felix. Leading some to think that Tertullus is a PhD because he lays it on and piles it on high and deep. Which in this case... We see this flattery. It is obnoxious, but it's also a sin. Job records, Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon carry me away. Thomas Brooks, Puritan, he put it this way. He said, Take heed of the flatterers. They are the very worst of sinners. They are left of God, blinded by Satan, hardened in sin, 
and ripened for hell. And the gall of Tertullus to praise Felix for his so-called peace that he brought. This couldn't be any further from the truth. But you have to understand Tertullus's case. Number one, this would set the stage for the main accusations they were going to bring against Paul. That he was a disruptor of the peace. And there are few things more important to the governor of Judea than peace. Rome was intensely concerned about peace in all parts of its massive Roman Empire to keep all the tribes and factions in check. And the biggest threat to peace, the biggest burr in the Roman saddle in Judea was the Jews and the radical factions that would spin out of legalistic Judaism. So the Romans tried to quell the passion of the Jews, even when they knew the target of the Jews was innocent. So what's really motivating the decisions by the Romans isn't blind justice, but it's political expediency. Fearing Caesar and Rome more than they fear God. Often denying justice to keep their peace, their precious Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So they walk a fine line between protecting the Roman citizens on one hand and the disparate factions on the other that might start a rebellion or a revolution. And Paul, of course, was not alone being caught in this vice. The early church itself would miraculously rise between, between the rock of powerful Rome on one side and the rock of legalistic Judaism on the other. And here was Paul being squeezed, being persecuted for the sake of peace, just as his master was. It was Pilate, the previous governor of Judea, who made the most infamous compromise for political expediency, declaring Christ innocent six times, yet still giving in to the Jews, who knew that a revolution or rebellion was Rome's greatest fear in order to keep the peace. That was the trump card that the Jewish authorities used previously against Jesus Christ. John records, Pilate kept seeking to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself to be a king opposes Caesar. A veiled threat that would ta- they would take this matter of Jesus of Nazareth all the way to Rome. So the politically expedient Pilate would capitulate, turning over the very prince of peace to his enemies delivering Jesus over to be crucified. Matthew records, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Tragic. The Jewish authorities got what they wanted their consciences seemingly unstained by the blood of Christ. But Pilate, he could not wash his hands clean of the blood of Christ. He could not scrub his guilty conscience clean. Threatening the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, it worked on Pilate to condemn the sinless Son of God. But will it work again on this disruptor? Paul, the follower of Christ, now before Felix, You know, Felix had to find these fawning opening statements from Tertullus amusing. 
knowing that the Jews had to sit there and endure the absurd notion that Felix was of all things a peacekeeper. The Jews knew better. After being on the receiving end of the vicious rod wielded by Felix, next Tertullus continues, and he brings three slanderous charges against Paul. The first charge is sedition against Rome. The second one is sectarianism against the Jews. And the third one is sacrilege against God. Starting in verse 5, For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining yourself concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So the first charge against Paul is one of sedition, which held the most potential to bring execution if they could only persuade Felix. But this was the hardest one to prove. So the slick Tertullus has to rely on exaggeration and slander along with his flattery. Sedition against Rome, if proved, could never be tolerated. Everybody knew that. This raised the stakes. So what was Tertullus' case against Paul? That Paul was a real pest. He was a real pest. And he stirs up dissension. It gets better. Among all the Jews throughout the whole world. Seriously. You know, in the courtroom, you had to imagine Paul sitting there going, Objection, Your Honor. Hearsay, exaggeration, right? But really, a pest and a troublemaker to all the Jews throughout the whole world. Does all mean all? Every person? Does the whole world mean every person in the whole world? Well, we've seen this in other parts of Scripture. Obviously, no, it doesn't mean that. But uh, you talk about a charge that was a mile, an inch deep and a mile wide. Now, Paul was part of several riots in the, in the Roman Empire, to be sure. When he rolled in town, you knew something was going down. It was either going to be a revival or a riot. But he was the victim of the riots. He wasn't the instigator of the riots. Paul was plotted against at Damascus, plotted against at Jerusalem, expelled from Pisidia, Antioch, stoned at Lystra, scourged in prison at Philippi, accused of treason at Thessalonica, hauled before the proconsul in Corinth, framed of a serious riot at Ephesus, remember the temple of Diana, and now finally he's framed of a riot at the temple in Jerusalem. Now I have to note, Tertullus is a bit handicapped here by the Jews because if he, if he named a particular location to hang on Paul in a particular incident, then Paul would be shipped off to that jurisdiction. And the Jews didn't want that. They didn't want to delay this persecution. They wanted a guilty verdict right here, right now. So Tertullus is, is forced to re- resort to gross generalities and general overstatements. So the strongest charge of sedition against Rome, the Jews' best hope against Paul, getting him executed for sedition is doomed right out of the gate before Paul even has to make his defense. Now, I must, must note that this was a common charge leveled at the early church. And I think the reason that we see this charge responded to throughout the book of Acts 
was to show that biblical Christianity is not a treasonous revolutionary movement. Christians are to respect the rule of law, and we are to be first-class citizens, as Romans 13.1 says. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that is so true. As long as the government doesn't command what we forbid, what God forbids, or forbid what God commands, right? And notice that time after time in the early church, when it comes to political insurrections, our brethren are largely exonerated because we aren't called to riot. We aren't called to start an insurrection. Rather, we're, we're to be witnesses to the world. And that is where, what should saturate our thoughts. We are not attached to this world. We have a heavenly calling. And we're called to be light to the redemption we've attained through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 puts it this way, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. We aren't called to clean, to clean up the kingdom of darkness. We're called to point people to Christ. So believer, is your witness, is your walk being clouded before an unbelieving world because of an overemphasis on the things of this world or maybe the politics of this world? Now, the second charge against Paul from Tertullus is that he was a sectarian and was one of sectarianism against the Jews. And this we see in the second half of verse 5, charging Paul with being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this was an attempt here by Tertullus to use some loaded terms to really paint Paul in as unfavorable light as he can before Felix. He's using the term ringleader. This was intentional to paint him as a radical revolutionary leader. The term sect was to connect him to the violent religious sects that were all over Judea. And finally, the term Nazarenes had a negative connotation. It was actually a slur. You guys remember Nathaniel, can anything good come from Nazareth? The, Naz- the Nazarenes from Nazareth were known as the backwater bumpkins of Galilee. Altogether, Tertullus sought to convince Felix that Paul was a rebel leader of a violent, unholy offshoot of Judaism, spawned out in the sticks that sought to destroy Judaism. Now, the third charge against Paul by Tertullus was that Paul engaged in sacrilege against God. So sedition against Rome, sectarianism against the Jews, and now sacrilege against God. In verse 6 it reads, And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. Desecrate the temple. Sacrilege against God's temple. They're really painting Paul as public enemy number one. A plague on humanity and now a plague against God. The so-called profaning of the temple was the touchstone event that set all this into motion and is the reason for this hearing, right? But it was an event entirely spun by the Jewish authorities. It is true the temple was a very sacred thing. And the laws of the temple were binding. If a Gentile was caught in the inner part of the temple, he would pay with his life. This was such a serious transgression to the Jews that Rome granted the Jews for just this one offense the right of capital punishment, which was stoning. This offense of profaning the temple 
Remember, the Jews tried, but couldn't prove against Jesus Christ. And that is why the Jews had to get the Romans to crucify him. Now, of course, they could not prove that Paul violated the temple either. Remember, it was the Jews from Asia Minor who saw Paul in the temple and made the scandalous charge to start the riot. You guys remember from a couple weeks ago, Acts 21, verse 28 and 29, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they, they supposed that Paul had brought him in the temple. Now in court, they even had to admit that Paul tried to defile the temple because they couldn't prove he actually did. Trophimus wasn't even with him. But even more pressing was the death penalty was for the Gentile, not for the Jew that brought the Gentile in, right? Paul never did that anyway. So the prosecution is in full spin mode, bringing another false charge against Paul. So these three charges, false charges, are followed up by even more falsehood. The end of verse 6 reads, we wanted to judge him according to our own law. Well, it's, it's never good to lie. It's especially not good to lie to a judge, and it's not good to lie to a judge who knows the truth. Felix knew from Lysias' letter of the plot and the oath to ambush and kill Paul. So serious was the threat to kill Paul, a Roman citizen, that Lysias found it necessary to escort Paul with 470 soldiers from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. Felix knew it was the Jewish mob that was the threat to violence, not a gospel-preaching tent maker. So verses 8 and 9, they wrap up the prosecution's case against Paul. He says, by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So Tertullus finishes with an assumptive close and some false witnesses. No surprise here. But then it's Paul's turn. And Paul's undaunted here. It reads in verse 10, And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul answered, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice Paul is polite, but unlike Tertullus, he's not seeking to butter up Felix, but rather acknowledging to Felix that he recognizes his experience of 10 years, not only as governor of Judea, handling these matters with the Sanhedrin, but also under service of the governor of Samaria. The author Luke even describes Felix in verse 22 as having a more accurate knowledge of the way. So actually, Paul displays some trust in Felix here because he knew he had to be familiar with the Jewish customs and laws and beliefs. But notice Paul's not fearful. It says he's cheerful. He makes his defense cheerfully. You talk about a spirit-filled man. I have to note that the Jews had their best human advocate in Tertullus, maybe the best attorney they could find. Paul had something greater. He had the greatest advocate with the indwelling Holy Spirit. In verses 11 through 21, we see Paul systematically and in order destroy these false charges brought against him. Starting in verse 11 through 13, he attacks the first charge, sedition against Rome. Since you're able to ascertain the fact that no more than 12 days ago, 
I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor across the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor are they able to prove to you of what they are now accusing me. So Paul makes the obvious case. He says, I arrived in Jerusalem 12 days ago. Felix knew he'd been in his own prison for five days. He'd been in the prison in Jerusalem for one day. So logically, how much trouble can one man make, even if he is a huge pest, in less than a week? So Paul is saying, I had no time. You have no proof. Therefore, there is no truth to the charge that I'm a seditionist. Next, in verses 14 through 16, Paul takes on the charge of sectarianism against the Jews. He reads, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law, and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God for which these men are waiting, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a conscience without fail before God and before man. So the second accusation was that Paul was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul starts by not denying he was a follower of a sect, making clear that he serves God according to the way. Jesus made clear in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And many times in the New Testament, believers are are described as being followers of the way. More specifically, that those that are following the narrow road, God's true path of salvation. One commentator mentioned that as Saul, Paul himself journeyed on his way to arrest members of the way, he himself was arrested by the one who alone is the way. That's right. Thankfully, there was religious freedom in the Roman Empire. So being a follower of the way was not a legal problem for Paul. Besides, the Romans viewed Christianity as a nonviolent offshoot of Judaism already. So Paul stands firm, declaring, yes, there is sufficient evidence to convict me of being a Christian, of being a follower of the way. How about you, believers? Is there sufficient evidence to convict you in a court of law of being guilty of being a Christian? If someone followed you around with a camera for a week, would they conclude, yep, this is one of them. He's guilty. This is a Christian right here. He's a follower of the way. Or would they say, no, I can't tell. This one looks just like the world. Exactly like the world. They walk like the world. They talk like the world. They drink like the world. They cuss like the world. I can't tell. Says they're a Christian, but who knows, right? Now, we also notice in verse 14 and 15 that Paul also stressed the similarity between his beliefs and those of the men of the Sanhedrin who were accusing him, to strengthen, at least in the Roman mind, the similarity between Judaism and Christianity. It reads, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God for which these men are waiting, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul is saying that we who are followers of the way We don't contradict the worship of the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
We don't contradict, but we believe everything in accordance with the summing up of the law and the prophets, which was the Old Testament. Paul's confession serves as an encouragement that Christianity is not a betrayal or an enemy of Judaism, but it's actual fulfillment. So Paul is saying we don't contradict the hope of the God of hope. And notice what it is that gives that hope. It's the resurrection. The resurrection is the heartbeat of the preaching and the witness of the book of Acts. Peter began with the resurrection in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And he hammered his countrymen when sermon after sermon on the importance of the resurrected Messiah being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The one they were all pointing to was here and you killed him. God raised him up and you killed him. Paul, as we've seen over and over again, is taking on the same resurrection message to the Gentile world and to many of the Jews as here before the Sanhedrin. Paul later, when writing to the Corinthians, showed the centrality of the resurrection when he said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. That's how important the preaching and the witness of the resurrection was. Interestingly here, this is the only New Testament mention of Paul proclaiming the full doctrine of the resurrection, of being of both the wicked and the righteous. Now, with Paul's bold proclamation of the resurrection, as he had done before, we can assume that, again, he recognized that there were Pharisees in this crowd, Pharisees within the Sanhedrin who had accompanied Ananias and the Sadducees down, for it is only the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin that believe in the resurrection. Now next in verse 16, Paul finishes his rebuttal to this charge of sectarianism against the Jew. He says, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a conscience without fail before both God and before men. A clear conscience is important to Paul as it should be with every believer, since it's a most valuable possession. Conscience literally means with knowledge. Everything you do is with knowledge. And conscience is a powerful thing. It is the soul's warning system. And the alarm in your soul will not stop in a guilty conscience until the sins are forgiven. Interestingly, it was Martin Luther who echoed Paul at his trial at the Diet of Worms 500 years ago, when he said, My conscience is captive to, the, captive to the Word of God. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. In verses 17 to 21, Paul turns to the final charge brought against him, which is sacrilege against God, It reads, now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings in which they found me having been purified in the temple without any crowd or uproar, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you to make accusation if they should have anything against me or else let these men themselves tell what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the Sanhedrin other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, 
for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. Paul here clarifies the event that sparked this whole trial. It was important to remind the crowd that he had been several years, five years total, out in Gentile territory, hence the need for the rites of purification. And although his main mission was an errand of mercy to bring the offering that he had collected when he was establishing the churches in Gentile lands, this reflected the church's unity with the Jews and the support, as Paul says, to my nation. See, Paul loved his people. He loved the people of Jerusalem. It was, in fact, after seven days when Paul and the men with him had, had completed their purification that they were set upon by the Jews from Asia Minor, who Paul is quick to point out ought to be here. They should be at this trial. Since they are the accusers and they are the witnesses to my so-called violation in the temple. So you can sum up Paul's defense this way. I am not causing trouble. I was submitting to the laws of, my, of our religion. I was ceremonially clean. And it was those that disturbed me when I was engaged in genu- genuine worship. They are the writers, not me. Why are they absent? After all, facing your accusers was a Roman custom. And finally, Paul closes his defense the way he began, reminding them that this is simply a difference of religious opinion, of which, again, the Romans don't regard as illegal. But notice the focus again on the issue of the resurrection of the dead. For the resurrection is where Paul's hope lies. Not only for getting an innocent verdict in this trial, but the resurrection is where Paul's hope lies for eternal life. Now, Felix's response, well, Felix... Like most Roman governors, he was skilled at the art of political expediency. He was an equal opportunity political hack. He would deny both sides justice by making a non-decision. The Jews would not have their blood. And Paul was in for a long, cozy stay at coastal Caesarea. Felix certainly was experienced in dealing with the controversies of the Sanhedrin, And more surprisingly, he wasn't ignorant of the early church. We see this in verse 22 and 23. But Felix, having a more accurate knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody, yet have some rest and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. You know, Felix already knew from Lysias that this case was merely, quote, over questions about their law, unquote. Paul knew he was innocent, and he knew, Felix knew that Paul was innocent. He knew he was not an international terrorist, so he gave him freedoms, kind of a light confinement. And we can assume that Philip, a local evangelist, you guys remember Philip, one of the seven, the server of tables, he brought the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, We can assume that he was a frequent visitor to Paul there in Caesarea. Now, next we see in verse 24, Paul gets summoned from his confinement. It reads, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess, and summoned Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, what would you give to go one-on-one with the Apostle Paul speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. 
arguably the greatest mind, the greatest evangelist in church history, writer of half the New Testament. And it's from him that this reprobate couple actually want to hear the gospel, proving that no one is so disqualified in their sin to be too far from the gospel. And what a divine opportunity that God has given Paul here to share the gospel with, his, with the governor and his wife. But it's here where the tables are turned. Felix is now in the docket before a man of God armed with the gospel. And Paul doesn't disappoint. He shoots three arrows into Felix's heart. As we see in verse 25, Paul giving an uncompromising three-point message. It says, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, this is not the easy believism garbage you hear today. God loves you so much. So you must accept him into your heart. That man-centered phraseology is foreign to Scripture. And it's foreign to Paul. Paul knows they first must face their true standing before a holy and righteous God. And that the wrath of God remains on them for their unrighteousness and their lack of self-control. Paul knows the gospel means nothing to an unbeliever until they first accept the bad news of their fallen condition. That they are soaring up wrath for the day of wrath. Only then can they embrace the good news. You know, Psalm 19 records the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. Paul knows that the crooked life of this, the crooked line of the sinner's life must be measured up to the perfect plumb line of the law of Yahweh and be measured against it. Then the problem becomes clear to the sinner, doesn't it? Then the sinner knows they have lied, they have stolen, they have lusted, they have blasphemed, and more. Just like every other sinner that's outside of Christ. And it is the law that reveals to the sinner their fallenness, isn't it? Which must proceed and affect the heart toward repentance to new life. And that is how the law of Yahweh restores the soul. That's how God uses the law to restore the soul. Now, Paul surely tells Felix there is none righteous, no, not one. And that God demands righteousness as if to say, Felix, your hands, are they not full of bribery? Felix, your feet, are they not quick to shed blood? Felix, your heart, is it not full of injustice? Felix, look at your life. Is it not full of unrighteousness? Also, Paul spoke to Felix about his lack of self-control. For he knew that Felix, just like everyone who is dead spiritually, is a slave to the desires of the flesh. And Felix displayed a sad history as a man mastered by passion and cruelty. And finally, Paul told Felix of the just judgment to come for all unbelievers. You say, well, what judgment? Well, Revelation 21 sums it up. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. Verse 25 tells us one of the saddest responses to hearing the gospel recorded in history. 
Felix became frightened and answered, go away for the present. When I find time, I'll call for you. Clearly alarmed, physically shaken, but unmoved. How tragic. It would seem that from then on, Felix's greed is what controlled him as he sought only a bribe from Paul over the next two years. Then Portius Festus took the seat as governor and he left Paul in prison. Verses 26 and 27 record, at the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to summon him, summon for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was seceded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do a Jew, the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. There's no evidence that Felix or Drusilla ever came to faith. But the takeaway, excuse me, <coughs> I'm getting over a cold. The takeaway here is glaringly obvious, isn't it? Felix in the docket would delay, but God's justice would not be delayed and it would not be denied. The eternal judge of the living and the dead gave him justice. And what did he give Paul? Mercy. In the end, it's only one or the other from God. It's either going to be mercy or justice. Paul in brokenness received God's mercy. Felix in rejection received God's justice. And as an unbeliever, the last thing you want from God is God's justice. Felix died with a heavy heart and he howled in the flames. Paul died with a light heart. Why? Because Jesus Christ's heart was so heavy at the cross. So while Felix was cast into the lake of fire, Paul sits on thrones. The great danger is that everyone here has heard the gospel. You say, why is that dangerous? It's dangerous because there may be some here who, like Felix, have looked into the face of eternal life and rejected it. You've rejected Christ, just as Felix saying, go away for the present, when I find time, I will call for you. You know, the Puritan John Flavel read of a harlot who killed her child. It read the baby smiled upon her mother when she went to stab her. Unbeliever, does not Christ smile upon you in the gospel? And will you, as it were, stab him in the heart by your infidelity? So turn away from your infidelity. Turn away from your sin. Repent of your sin. You're not a child of Christ. You remain a child of Adam. So repent. Why? Because true repentance strips us stark naked of all the garments of Adam. So repent and put on Christ by putting all your faith and trust in Him. And you'll be wrapped in His righteousness. You'll be clothed in Christ. Not clothed in Adam. And let this be the last time that you hear the gospel as an unbeliever. And if God is convicting you of your sin, don't neglect his call, for he is calling you. Call out to him for mercy. And I beg that you be like Abraham who believed, who had faith, who staggered not at the promises of God, and come to Christ. You'll not only save yourself from the judgment to come, but you will finally turn that alarm off that is ringing in your conscience.
because all your sins will forever be forgiven. Let's pray as uh, Noel and the team comes up. Heavenly Father, we, uh, the thought of our sins being forgiven it just thrills us, Lord. Uh, we're so thankful for um, the sins that we just deserve punishment for that you have taken away and you have rescued us from the wrath to come, wrath that we deserve, wrath that we earned by our rebellion, our sin, our unrighteousness, even our lack of self-control. And Lord, you bought us off the slave block and you, you have had mercy on us. So we praise you, Lord, and that's what we seek to do now as we sing this last song. We praise you, we love you in Jesus' name, amen.